Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." I believe these two verses, verses 3 and 4, our context are for today, um, are probably two of the most absolutely crucial verses in the Bible for Christians to understand and apply to their lives if they're going to experience a thriving Christian life. I think all of us are touched in some way on this earth by different situations, troubles, um, sickness. We live in these sinful bodies. We live in this sinful planet that's fallen all around us. Uh, Whether it's temptation, sin, failure, disappointment, alienation, sorrow, loneliness, weakness, pain, all these things seem to close in on us at times at different points in life. And we all know that that's part of our life experience. You don't, even for Christians, you don't become a Christian and then all these problems just go away. But I want to ask the question this morning, what do we do when we're faced with all these different issues as believers? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to deal with it? Uh, Where are we supposed to go to solve the issues of life? I think that most of us would say, well, we go to God. Some of us may be honest and say, you know what? Sometimes it almost seems like God doesn't care. Sometimes we question whether we can actually turn to God. Does he love us enough to give us what we need after we're saved to get through some of these situations that we face? Or is God a God that just saves you? He gets things going for your Christian life and then he says, you know what? Uh, I'm going to leave you to your own devices and your own struggles and you figure out the rest and you kind of squirm your way through the rest of your Christian life dealing with sin and failure time after time after time. And you want to stop and you want to ask yourself, is that the way the Christian life is meant to be lived? Is that what God saved us to? A life of pain and struggle. When you read even Christian psychologists, a lot of people in the, that realm of professionalism, psychology will tell you, even though you have God and you have been saved through Christ, um, there's still need for therapy. You still are inadequate. God can't meet those kind of needs in your life. 
even people of religion would say, well, yeah, you know, now that you're saved, you may know Christ, but somehow you, you have to get more of him. You don't have enough of Jesus. Uh, you need some kind of a special experience or a special anointing from him to really be adequate. So we end up with the body of Christ who's supposed to be united, but yet it's divided because you have the haves and the have-nots. You have those who think that they have achieved greater spirituality and superiority over those who have not certain things. And so you've got to ask the question, does God save us and then just give us enough grace to squeak by day by day? You know, we sing that song, Your Grace is Enough. You could understand that one of two ways. It's barely enough (laughs) or that it's more than enough. Maybe God has saved us, but do we actually see God in our daily lives sanctifying us, making us more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we really believe that one day, yeah, God saved us, and one day he will actually glorify us? It comes down to the word sufficient. Are we sufficient in our salvation? Or is there something more that we need to have? I know in college when I was in school, we had a gentleman come to a chapel and he taught a thing on discipleship. And the whole, his whole premise was, well, you come to Jesus as Savior, but then there's something more. You have to acknowledge him as Lord. And so he drew a line in Scripture between those who were mere believers in Christ and those who were disciples of Christ. And he made a distinguishment between the two. I don't see that now as I look at Scripture. I think if you're a disciple of Christ, you're a follower of Christ, you're a believer in Christ, it's impossible to be a believer in Christ and not be his disciple. That or your belief is in vain. So does God give us just enough of this grace to get by, to squeak by, or does he make us sufficient? Sometimes you talk to people, you know, about going to heaven, and they'll say, yeah, I'll probably just squeak in, (laughs) you know, just by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin. I want to share with you this morning some verses briefly. They're not really in your outline, so I put them up on the screen, and and, uh, just the references there and some of the text, but um, you can follow along. And and these verses talk about the goodness of God. They talk about that our God provides more than what we need. They talk about the greatness of God. In Exodus, for example, verse 34, chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord says, I am compassionate, I am gracious, I am abounding in loving kindness. Not that I got enough just to hopefully... Have you squeak by? No, he says, I'm compassionate, I'm gracious, and I'm abounding in loving kindness. Lamentations chapter 3 says, The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. His compassions, they never, ever fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Aren't you glad we serve a faithful God? Aren't you... Aren't you Can't you rejoice this morning with me that our God, his compassions never fail, his grace, his loving kindness never ceases, that every day when you wake up in the morning, it's a new day in Christ? 
There's some days I go through that, boy, I can't wait for that new day. Psalm 103.11 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. You say, well, how high is the heaven above the earth? We don't know. (laughs) Or Psalm 121, you can turn there with me. Read the whole psalm. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. What a wonderful package of promises there we find in Psalm 121. Basically, it says God's got everything covered. He's taking care of everything for you. You turn to the New Testament, you see in John 1.16, says, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. From the fullness of Christ. We just didn't get part of that when we got saved. We got the whole thing. John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and that you might have, what? Abundant life. That you may have it more abundantly. Are we living the abundant Christian life today? Or are we just kind of dragging ourselves through this sin-stained world each day? Trying to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps to get through another day. Romans 8, 17 says we are not just heirs, but we are, look at this, joint heirs with Christ. Joint heirs with Christ. And all that God gives to Christ, incredible verse, he gives to us. That's what that means. We have a a right to that because we're we're in Christ. We're joint heirs with Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21 says, For all things belong to you. Who's he writing to? He's writing to that church that struggled. He's not writing to some elite Christians. No, he's writing to the Corinthians. They were kind of the bottom of the barrel when it comes to churches. They had all sorts of issues. They were carnal in every way, the Bible says. They were dealing with sin within the ranks and all kinds of chaos going on in their church. But what he says to them is, for all things belong to you. He goes on, he says, whether it's Paul or Apollos, Cephas, the world, death, life, present, Things to come, all these things belong to you. Doesn't matter what they are, we have them in Christ. Because he says there, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. See, we're all wrapped up together with Christ, and whatever God and Christ possess, we possess. I mean, when you stop and think about it, we possess the world because God made it for us. We possess life, spiritual life, eternal life in Christ. The Bible says that even in death, that's gain for the Christian. We don't need to fear death. We possess things present in our daily life, whether it's good, bad, 
indifferent, whatever, painful, joy, disappointment, whatever it might be, helpless, sick. See, God gave it all to us so that he could work all these things together, the Bible says, for our good. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you. Look at this. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Do you know that God, when he saved you, he made you sufficient? You don't have to go groveling around in the closet for something more. That's not how God saved you. God saved you sufficiently. He saved you completely. That word sufficient there really means to be self-contained. To be self-contained. It means to be independent of external circumstances in your life. It means to be independent of even the services of other people. I remember when I was saved and I went to college and I had no one to disciple me, I had, you know, nobody. But God, you know what? He took care of me. Why? Because I was sufficient in Christ to deal with whatever came down the pike. So many times we're so quick to take somebody who makes a profession of faith, they say they come to Christ, and rather than wait and see how God has transformed their life, we take them right away and we start teaching them all these things. And it's my opinion that there's a lot of people in the church They've never been transformed. They've just been taught a lot of good things. So they learn the language of Christianity, but their heart is still cold. There's no life there. There's been no transformation because they've been, quote, discipled without having any change in their life. Now, we know that as a body of Christ, we're supposed to be dependent upon one another. That's clear. The the Word of God tells us that. But not when it comes to our salvation. The Apostle Paul is very clear. He says that we are all self-sufficient in Christ. He's made us competent. He's made us capable. He's given us everything we have in Christ. So never think of yourself as a Christian and think of yourself as being insufficient, unable to do what God has called you to do. Because as you rely on him, as you rely on the power of the Spirit in your life, the Bible says that you're completely sufficient for every work that God has called you to. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, look at this, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everything possibly known, he's blessed us with. Ephesians 2.7 says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. In other words, you can't even measure his grace. His his grace overflows all bounds of measurement in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Grace upon grace he gives us. 
Ephesians 3, 17 to 18 says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, look at what it says, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. I mean, that's measurement in every way. It's almost incomprehensible. And I get tired sometimes of Christians who are off, found wandering somewhere else looking for something more. When if they're truly saved, beloved, they have everything they need right there within themselves, in Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by, empty, or by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. And not according to Christ. And then he says this. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled or made complete in him. We're already complete in Christ. There's nothing to add. Who is the head of all rule and authority. Sometimes we think that somehow God saves us and then, you know, just gives us enough to kind of get through each day. The words of Solomon, Ecclesiastes 3.14, the word of God says this, I know that everything God does will remain forever. And then it says this, there is nothing to add to it. I love this. And there's nothing to take from it. nothing to add to it, and there's nothing to take from it. What's that saying? Whatever God gave you, you know what? You can't add anything to it. If God saved you in Christ, you, you can't add to that salvation. We're sufficient in Christ. Do we need more of Jesus? No, we don't. We need to utilize what he's already given us. Do we need more of his power? No, we don't. We need to utilize what he's already given us. Do we need more of his love? No. The Bible says that his love is shed abroad in our hearts. Do we need some kind of human help, some kind of therapy, some kind of psychology beyond Scripture? I would say you turn to God first. You turn to God first. Because Psalm 84, 11 says, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. In other words, you know, there's nothing missing here. God is complete in his provision for us. You say, well, why did so many Christians doubt that? Why did so many Christians out wandering around looking for something more? Exactly my point. Maybe they're not saved. Maybe they've never come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Maybe they're just trusting in some experience. Maybe they're just trusting in, in some prayer they prayed. But they've never seen Jesus Christ literally transform their life. Everywhere you turn in the New Testament, when people came to Christ and were touched by Christ, they were transformed. You could see that they were saved. You could see that there was a, a change in their life. Something Started different in their in their walk in their life. 
They left sin behind and they turned to the Savior and they, they, they ran after the Savior. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, then it says this, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What Paul's saying there is, look, if, you, if, if God gave his own son, he didn't hold back anything. He gave us the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave him up for all of us. So you think once you're in Christ, he's going to hold something back from you when he's already given you everything he has? Silly. In Christ, we are sufficient, beloved. We have a sufficient salvation to save us. Do we need fellowship? Definitely. We're commanded to fellowship. Do we need wisdom? Yes. The Bible says there's, there's wisdom in the multitude of counselors. Do we need mutual care? Definitely. The New Testament tells us that we should care for one another through kindness and counsel, all those things. But when it comes to spiritual resources, we uh, have the very indwelling of the Spirit through that miracle of salvation that happens, and we're self-contained, sufficient believers. God wasn't stingy when he gave us salvation. He gave us everything there is to give. Matter of fact, Jesus likens salvation to a wedding feast. And the reason he does is because back then a wedding feast was something that was lavishly done. Over the top. Well, when we come to verse 3 in 2 Peter... We've already talked about in verse 1 the source of our salvation. We talked about the substance of our salvation in verse 2. In verse 3 and 4, we see the sufficiency of our salvation. The sufficiency of our salvation. His divine power. His divine power. That's the source of our sufficiency. See, we're not sufficient in and of ourselves. Don't take that away from my message. That's heresy. No, we're sufficient in Christ. We're sufficient because he gave us that supernatural energy, that supernatural power through the power of the Spirit. It's not because we did anything. It's not natural power. It's a supernatural power. It's not human power. It's divine power. And so Peter begins here with just assuring our hearts that our salvation and all of its benefits come to us through the power of God. Look at, turn over with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. It says there in verse Ephesians 3, verse 20. Love this section of Ephesians. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. When you pray to God and you expect him to answer to your prayer, do you expect him to do far more abundantly than even what you're asking for? I would say most of us don't. <laughs> Matter of fact, probably a great majority here even this morning would be hard-pressed to say, yeah. If I asked, okay, raise your hand the last time God answered one of your prayers, you saw that answer in a supernatural way. Might be hard-pressed to put your hand up. 
may have been weeks, months, who knows. But it's not because of God's lack of desire. It says, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Look at, according to the power at work where? In us. In us. The power of God is working in and through us for those that know Christ. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. See, the very same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, beloved, that resurrection power operates in you and in me each and every day. We can do things that we can't even think about. We can do things that we can't even speak about because it's divine power. It's his power. First Peter, it says, his divine power. Well, who, who is he referring to? He's referring to Jesus. Has to be. That's why he qualifies divine. That's why he qualifies the power. If he just says God's power, obviously it would be divine power. You wouldn't have to put divine in there. But because he qualifies it with his, he's referring back to the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did Jesus Christ have power? You bet he did. When he was on earth, you can look throughout the New Testament and find where he literally just drove sickness from an area when he went there. He had supernatural divine power. Romans 1.4 says that Jesus Christ was the Son of God with power. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says that Paul rejoiced at the power of Christ and that it dwelt in him. A supernatural power. I like what John MacArthur says. He said this, the Christian can never experience a power failure. <laughs> you can get unplugged, he says. You can turn the, the switch off, but the power is still there. Never fails. Divine power, that, that power that where you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that divine power, it says, is granted to us. His divine power, the power of Jesus Christ, has been granted to us. That word granted is a compound word. It, it's in the perfect tense in the original language, which means that God has generously granted us this permanent power. Something that he gave us way back here and it still is active. It still has results in our life today. That's the meaning of that word. Notice that it says his divine power was granted to us. It was something that had to be given to us. We, we couldn't come up with this on our own. It's something outside of ourselves. And Jesus, our Lord, by divine power, generously, continuously gives us this power. It says, he granted to us all, those who were in Christ, to us all things that pertained to life and godliness. 
It speaks of the, not just the divine power of God here, but also his provision. The provision of our salvation. What did he grant to us? It says everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything in the original language, guess what it means? Everything. That's what it means. You don't have to be a rocket science. It's pretty simple. I mean, none of us, I think, when we look at our practical lives, would assume that we have everything necessary to life and godliness. I just don't think that's the average thought of the average Christian. I think that we stumble and we fumble around so much. And yet, right here in this this text, it tells us that we have everything. He's granted to us all things. That speaks of our sufficiency in Christ. First of all, relating to life, he says. I mean, life is a reality. We go through it every day. We have new life in Christ and everything related to sustaining the life that we have comes to us through Christ. That's why we believe as a church that the scriptures teach that once you come to Christ, once you're gloriously saved by his grace, that you're, you're, you're secure in your salvation because you have everything that pertains to that life. That's why we believe that, that Christians will permanently persevere, that you can't lose your salvation, as some teach. Why? Because you have everything necessary to sustain that life. That's why when you practically look at your life, no matter what struggle you're going through, no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what trial or tribulation, I want you to understand this morning that you have everything you need to deal with it in Christ. Because all that you need in life, you already have. That's what he says. He's already granted it to us. You have it in fullness. You have it in abundance. Or not just in life, but also it says there in godliness. Everything you, you need to be godly, you already have. You don't have to go beg God for something more. That word godliness there speaks of reverence and worship. It speaks of active obedience. Everything you need to live the godly life, you already have. You don't have to go looking for some ecstatic experience or miracle or wonder and sign, all those things. It's irrelevant. You already have everything you need. You can say you have every spiritual resource to sustain and perfect that eternal life that is in you. And every spiritual resource to manifest that life of a godly lifestyle that's honoring to God. It's all there. It's never a question, beloved, of sufficiency. It's never a question of, did God provide enough for you? The grace that is so powerful to save is equally powerful to sustain. Well, how do you get this? (laughs) Divine power... Look at verse 3. 
it says it comes through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. The only way that you're going to receive this kind of power, the only way that that's possible, is simply through Christ, through knowing him. We already talked about that word knowledge last week. It means, speaks of a deep, deep knowledge. He's not talking about a superficial knowledge. Oh, yeah, 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 I know about Jesus. I was at a dinner last night and sat next to a retired sheriff deputy who was Jewish and uh, gotten to talk about Israel and different things. And, and uh, he mentioned, he said, yeah, you know, to go over there and to walk down the Via Della Rosa and see, you know, where Jesus walked. That was quite an experience. And I said, oh, you know who Jesus is? Well, sure, sure. He didn't know him, but he knew who he was. See, we're not talking about a superficial knowledge. We're not talking about a knowledge that is simply just an acquaintance kind of a knowledge. What he's saying here is you have to know him in a personal way. Not just some knowledge about the fact that he lived and he died and he rose on the third day. But you have to know him. Remember, in Matthew 7.21, this this verse that we read sometimes even fearfully, the idea that many will say to me on that day, the Lord says, Lord, Lord, and I will confess unto them, depart from me, I never, ever knew you. And they make a petition. They say, but Lord, we preached in your name. We did many miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I never knew you. In the Old Testament, scriptures tell us that that word knowledge is used when Cain knew his wife. Intimate knowledge. And she bore a child. Or that Joseph was surprised when Mary was pregnant because he hadn't known her yet. He's talking about intimacy. And so this procurement of this salvation, this sufficiency, comes through the knowledge of him. It means an intimate relationship that a person can have with Christ by faith. By truly knowing Christ in the sense of an intimate relationship. Communion. See, we're not talking about religion here. We're not talking about coming to church. We're not talking about praying before your meal. That, that's all religious stuff, and all that's good. But we're talking about an intimate relationship that's so much more than that. And when someone comes to the true knowledge of who Christ is, he receives the power of God through Christ, which brings into his life every spiritual provision his life could ever need to be sustained and live a life that would be pleasing to God. 
Well, you say, well, how does this knowledge happen? How does it take place? It happens when you understand that Jesus lived and he died as a human, as God in human flesh. When I understand that he died for my sin, when I understand that he rose again on the third day, when I understand that he is the Lord of all, and when I come to him and I say, Lord, you know what? I believe in you. I turn from my sin and I give you my life to follow. I, I follow you with my life in obedience as my Lord. See, that's that true knowledge that involves sacrifice, that involves humility, that involves brokenness. And it's through that true knowledge, that's when God grants us this power that we're talking about that makes us sufficient. When you're born into the family of God, you're born sufficient and self-contained. Nothing new is going to be added to that. The Bible says that you're a new what? Creation. I mean, sure, you need to grow, you need to mature in your faith, but all the resources are there. My God shall supply all your need. How will he do it? According to his riches in Christ Jesus. See, by means of Christ Jesus, you have all your needs already supplied. Personal knowledge of Jesus Christ is how you obtain that. Well, there's a couple things that you need to understand about this knowledge. Lest you walk out of here thinking, okay, I'm just going to try to get this on my own. First of all, it's a knowledge that God initiates. God initiates it. It says there, through the knowledge of him in First Peter or Second Peter uh, 1, 3, through the knowledge of him who called to us. God initiated. God's call comprises of two phases, two aspects, you might say. First of all, there's a general call. And there's an effectual call. What's the, the general call? The general call is basically the proclamation of the gospel. When you go out and you proclaim the gospel of Christ, it's a call which urges sinner to come to Christ for salvation. That's a general call. Well, what's that message contain? It's, it's, we're, we're, we're commanded to proclaim this message of the gospel with authority. And first of all, it's a story of historical occurrences. It's a historical proclamation. The idea that Christ died, he lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose, 1 Corinthians 15. It's also an authoritative interpretation of those events. It's, in other words, you're, you're kind of making a theological evaluation. The fact that Christ died for our sins, what does that mean? That's part of the gospel message. But I want you to hear this too. It's an offer of salvation to whosoever will. Whosoever will. It's a summons. The idea that you repent and you believe. 
That's the general call, the call that's to be freely and universally offered. In Matthew 18, Jesus came up and said, Full authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go then and make disciples of all nations. Well, how is the general call different from the effectual call? The effectual call results always in salvation. Look at verse 3. It's, it comes through the true knowledge of him who called us, it says. So you can't come to this kind of knowledge unless God, what, calls you. It's impossible. That's the, you might say, the sovereign side. That's God's side of the issue. Well, how does God call you? How does he do that? John 16 says the Holy Spirit begins to convict us of our sin. So first of all, you see your sin. And then that power of Satan on your life is broken. You begin to see the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's God drawing you to himself. He shows you your need of a savior. The only way that this kind of knowledge can be obtained is through the true knowledge of Christ. This kind of sufficiency through the true knowledge of Christ. And the only way you can have true knowledge is if God calls you and grants this to you. Jesus put it this way in the New Testament. He says, no man comes unto me except the what? The Father draws him. The Father draws him. See, that's all God's part. God is effectually calling those who he's chosen even before the world began. And you say, well, if God's got it all wrapped up, then what do I got to do anything for? Because he leaves a part for you, beloved. He works through the volition of man somehow. What's your part? Look again at verse 3. It says, true knowledge starts when we're called. But notice, it says, that call is affected toward us by his glory and excellence. I mean, I don't know about you, but I just didn't wake up one day and say, yeah, I think I'll become a Christian today. Sounds like a good idea. No, it didn't happen that way at all. God worked through other people. They shared the gospel with me. I pondered the gospel, went back and forth on it, just kind of, you know, there was, there was part of my intellect involved. There's part of my emotion involved. I just didn't get out of bed and say, I feel the Spirit's drawing me to Christ. It didn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way with anybody. What, what caused me to understand that I was in need of a Savior was when I saw the, 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 the glory and the excellence of Christ next to my sinful self. And I realized, wow, I am not adequate. I am not sufficient enough to deal with my sin. I can go to church from now till the day I die. That's not going to deal with my sin. That's not going to grant me forgiveness. So God opened my eyes to the gospel. There was a night when I heard the gospel over and over and over again over a dinner. And finally, it's like God turned the switch on. And I said, well, here in Romans, if it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, 
I guess that means me too. And you don't know how hard that was for me to come to that point. And yet God granted me that ability. What caused me to seek a true knowledge of Christ was when I saw the wickedness and the vileness of my own sin, how much it fell short, and then I saw the glory of Christ. See, God calls, but that calling becomes effectual when we are drawn by the glory and excellence of Christ. Somehow he weaves those things together. That's the only way that we can have this kind of knowledge. That's the only way we can have this kind of sufficiency in our salvation. When you look through the, the, the Gospel of John, that's why it's, it's good when you have somebody who's seeking after Christ. Have them read through the Gospel of John because John basically presents Christ. He presents the miracles of Christ. Miracle after miracle after miracle. What is he doing? He's, he's showing the power of Christ, the excellency of Christ. And he tells us all the way at the end of the Gospel of John, he says, these things are written that you might what? Why did he write the Gospel of John? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you might have life through his name. See, when you exalt the name of Christ, it can draw people to him. You have to see the glory of Christ. You have to see the excellence of Christ. All glory belongs to God. Romans 10 says that no man comes to faith except by hearing about Christ. And the first thing you need to hear about is his glory, that he's God. What do you preach to people? What do you share with those who are lost? You share the glory of Christ. The fact that he gloriously saved you. That your sins are forgiven. They're no longer counted against you. Not because of you and your religion, but because of of God granting that to you. What also tells us here, his divine power is granted to, to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, and it comes through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. But then it says this in verse 4, which is really neat. It says, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. His precious and very great promises. So that We have become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Power gives provision which is obtained, procured, and it leads to promises. His glory, his excellence, is not only what attracts us, but his glory as God and his excellence as perfect grants us his precious promises. Precious and magnificent promises, some translations read. 
precious and very great promises. Precious means valuable, honorable, costly, magnificent, or very great. It means just over the top, the greatest. There's, there's no other promise besides this one. What are the promises of Christ? Well, for one, he says, he that believes in me shall live. He said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He said, because I live, you can live also. All of those promises are in Christ. And they're available. They're provided for us. Do you have everything? Are you a are you sufficient in Christ? You are, definitely. Notice that word there, partakers, that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Wow. We're partakers of a divine nature? Think on that one. Somehow, the Father God drew us through the attractive glory and excellence of Christ, and he gave us all these promises through that true saving knowledge of his Son so that we could partake of his very nature? When you, become, when you come to Christ, you receive everything that you need. It's a one-stop shop mart. It's it. You just go there, that's it. You don't need to go anywhere else. John 1.12 says that you become children of God. Romans 8.9 says that the Spirit of God literally dwells inside you. You possess that divine nature. Galatians 2.20 says that I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who what? Lives in me. God lives in me? <laughs> Colossians 1.27 speaks of Christ in you. Our temples are the our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That word partaker there is translated oftentimes fellowship. It means to be a sharer or, or a partner with somebody. We partake of God's life in us. We're partners in that same life. How can that be? It says at the end of verse four. having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Having escaped. See, when we come into Christ, we have a, a, a new nature in Christ. The life of God is birthed within you. And you begin to live a life that is pleasing to God. You're a partaker of the divine nature, having already escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That word corruption has the idea of something rotten. Have you ever left something in your refrigerator? Or, you know, one time we went away on vacation and I left something on the countertop and I forgot about it. It was not pretty when I got home. I mean, it was all sorts of stuff growing. The house stunk. It was horrible. Just, it was just rotten to the core. That's that word, corruption. There's no good there. And that's what the Bible said. There's, there's no good in any of us. We'd like to think that we're good people, but we're not. The Bible says our hearts are wicked just right to the core. 
when God gives us birth through Christ, we have a whole new life. He comes in and he cleans all that, that corruption out. It's gone. It's driven by that word lust. Epithemia, it's evil desire. Just the desire to do evil. We all have that within us. It's in the world. But he says, you know what? You've escaped it. You've escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The only way that could happen is through this true knowledge. The only way that could happen is through this supernatural power that's granted to us. We don't save ourselves, beloved. God saves us. Someday we're going to return to glory. We're going to leave these rotting bodies here and we're going to be gone. But it's important, I think, for us to realize that until that time comes, we need to understand how to live our Christian lives in this fallen and sinful world. We have to realize that, you know what? God has called us to a high standard. God has called us to to live each day to the fullest with joy in our hearts, knowing that somehow he is working out his purpose and his plan through our lives. We don't have to grovel around in the dark wondering how we're going to get through another day because if we're in Christ, we are sufficient. He has provided for our every need. When you know Jesus, three quick points here to close. Knowing Jesus is really the key to receiving from God. We said that at the beginning when he talked in verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. If you want to receive anything from God, you have to come to him on his terms. And his terms are very simple. They're through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no side door. There's no back door. God wants a relationship with you. He wants you to experience his blessings, his forgiveness. But it has to come through knowing Jesus. And if you want to live a victorious Christian life, the only way to do that is through knowing Jesus. It's the only way. You can know all you want about your religion and all that kind of stuff, but you know what? In the end, it's what you do with Christ that counts. And I think knowing Jesus is also key to transformation. Anywhere in the New Testament, when people were transformed by Christ, it was because they came into a knowledge of him that otherwise they did not have. So I pray as we leave here today, I want to ask you simply the simple question. Do you know Christ? Do you know who he is? Do you you know that you have that relationship with him? That he's forgiven your sins? He desires to know you in a fuller way. Father, we pray this morning that as we went through these two verses, Lord, we thank you for this power, this divine power that was given to us. It was granted to us. Not because of what we did, but because of your grace and your mercy.
And Lord, you've made us as believers sufficient in you. For every task that you call us to, you provide the needs to get it done. You always provide. And Lord, I pray that our knowledge of you would increase through the knowledge of your word. You've revealed your word to us and you desire for us to know you better each and every day. So for believers, I pray that we'd make sure that we're taking that Bible off the shelf, not just on Sundays, but every day of the week. Maybe we need to read through the Gospel of John and see if we can learn a little more about your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who so richly provided for our salvation. For those here this morning who have yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, I pray that you would please understand that God desires you to be saved. It says that in Scripture. He desires you to come to him. And I pray that God would just call your heart this morning that you would see your need of a Savior, that you would turn to him from your sin. Ask him even to help you in your unbelief, to give you the information maybe that you need. God can work in a myriad of ways, through our mind, through our emotions, through our intellect, through other people. All I know is that When I answered that effectual call of God on my life, my life was never the same. It was all for the better. And I know at night when I lay my head on my pillow that I can trust in the sufficiency of God to take care of me. Whether I breathe another breath or not, my life is hidden in Christ. He desires you to know that same thing. I pray that you would yield your heart to the Savior even this morning. Father, we thank you for our message. We pray that you would just bless our time of fellowship after the service today. And Father, we pray if anyone has any questions, that they would contact us and just so that we could discuss whatever things might be on their heart. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.